Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. So this morning we are stepping back into the book of Matthew, uh, our Matthew series that we've been doing actually for a few years now, uh, which is crazy to say. And if this is your first time, again, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Also, this might seem a little odd to say that we've been in Matthew for a few years, yet we are in Matthew 1. We just like to read really, really, really slowly. Clearly, I'm joking. That was probably a bad joke, but that's okay. Uh, The real answer uh, is because when we first started this series back in the day, we said that uh, we were going to actually save chapters one and two uh, for, you know, one of these Christmas seasons that we were going to do. And so here we are, Christmas, as you can tell. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. I need more of that energy. Now, if you grew up in church, uh, you're probably familiar with a version of the Christmas story, right? Not the movie, but the actual Christmas story. And honestly, if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably still familiar with it, right? You're at least for the heavy hitters, right? You got Mary, you got Joseph, you got the baby Jesus, you got the evil king, Herod, right? The wise men, all of that kind of all checks out. But do you know one thing that always gets left out? Can anybody name it? One thing that always gets left out. That's it, man. He's got it. Are you looking at my notes? Um, The genealogy, right? Like, it gets left off of every play, every sermon, every song. Man, don't you feel that? That just hurts. It just hurts. Like, doesn't everybody in their family go over their genealogy at least once a week? No? No? No, just, just me. Um, okay, that's joke number two. That was joke number two. I'm 0 for 2. That's okay, though. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, but in all honesty, uh, most of us probably tend to skim or to at least skip over the genealogy, right? Like, all these ancient names, like, what do they even mean? Like, for me, like, right now, I'm actually reading through First Chronicles. Any First Chronicles fans? In the room, just, I have a head nod, okay. I see a few people, okay, okay. Yeah, you, you can't really humble brag about reading through First Chronicles, not even, not even a little bit, because most of the people just want to, like, you know, finish your statement and be like, uh, of Narnia? Yeah. Is, that, is, that what you, is that what you meant? No, no, I meant the book of the Bible, First Chronicles. Um, but for real, there are so many ancient names that reading them is like reading the fine print at the beginning of a book. Do y'all know what I'm referencing, right? It's the place where the writer, the editor, the graphic designer um, usually is contributing, and and, and they contribute so much, right? Like, you wouldn't be reading that book if they were not producing it, right? 
And while those people are so pivotal and so important, who cares? Who cares, right? Like, no one wants to read the fine print. Everybody wants to get to the story. Everybody wants to get to the story. And I would imagine for a lot of us, these ancient names that we're about to read don't really have an impact, or we don't feel like they have an impact on our lives at all, hence why we skip it. And really, up until this sermon, I would have had to agree with you. But today, as we cover Jesus' genealogy, I want you to see how much his genealogy actually impacts your life, and not just your life, but the lives of the people around you. That is my goal for today. Essentially, I want to give you eyes to see something that you may have glossed over or skipped over. And, if nothing else, for some of us who are having kids or want to have kids, maybe you can glean some unique names from <laughs> this passage. Exactly. One for two. Okay, so let's read through the whole thing uh, in its entirety, then we'll kind of circle back around uh, and focus on a few things together. That sound good? Don't, don't sound so excited, guys. That sound good? There we go. All right, all right. Matthew, we'll get through it one way or another. Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. This, and I'm going to try to sound excited. I'm going to try to like get into it, okay? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And his brothers. Matthew didn't even name them. That was, that was cold-blooded, my guy. Cold-blooded. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Okay. Now, if you are here today and you are thinking through baby names, I'm going to go ahead and say that branching out into names of fish might be an untapped market for you. <laughs> so just go ahead, keep that in your back pocket. That's for you. No one else, okay? No one else listened to this sermon. Okay, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Did y'all catch that? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew isn't hiding anything, apparently. He's leaving it out all on the table. Verse 7, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. That was a lot. That was a lot. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We're still good? Good, because we're not done. Um, 
verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Please don't say that five times fast. Um, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Okay, pause. <laughs> Haven't even gotten there yet. Hold on. Y'all better not name your kids Zerubbabel. <laughs> Like, can you imagine how many people will pick on this kid if you name your kid Zerubbabel? Okay, okay. Also, if, you, if you've already named your kid Zerubbabel, it is a lovely name. I promise it is a lovely, <laughs> lovely name. Never change it. All right, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, which is obviously a Pokemon. Look it up. Got to catch them all. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Nathan. Nathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. Here we go, guys. This is the moment. This is what we came here for. You can wake up now. The husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, did I just hear a clap? I paid them. Uh, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile uh, to the Messiah. All right, let me take a little bit of water. That's, that's a lot. There's nothing quite like a random list of names to get you into the Christmas spirit, right? Can't you feel it? Just smells like Christmas. Um, so now that you've gotten a glimpse at this whole passage that we've went through, uh, what in the world is this about, right? What does this actually have to do with you and I? Um, because it, it leaves a lot to be desired, right? Well, for starters, let's, let's ask this question. Why a genealogy? Like, what are you doing, Matthew? Why start off the Christmas story, and not only that, but in an entire book of the Bible, and not just a book, but the first book of the New Testament. Why do all of that with this type of passage? Because it feels very much like a Star Wars movie intro, right? Like, you can see it, black screen, yellow text, you know, slightly tilted. Like, it really starts like that. So why a genealogy? Well, I think it has to do with how people thought of themselves back in the day. Like, for instance, today, if we uh, want to convince someone of our legitimacy, of our competency, of our worthiness, we tend to use our accomplishments, right? When we're applying for a job, we bring a resume, right? That's kind of what we do. We bring a resume, hey, here is my accomplishment. Here's what I've done. When we want to impress somebody at a party, we try to ever so casually mention some of the things that we're most proud of, right? Like reading First Chronicles. I, I'm proud of it. Um, <laughs> when we meet someone new, one of the first things we do is ask, what do you... Exactly. Exactly. In a lot of ways, for better or for worse, we define ourselves by what we have accomplished. But back then, it was a little bit different. People back then defined themselves less by what they did and more by the family that they actually came from. So if you wanted someone to, to, to think you were impressive 
You wouldn't give them a resume. You would tell them about your family tree. It was your way of saying, hey, this is the stock that I am coming from. I'm a big deal in case you didn't know. So uh, this would be the equivalent of someone coming up to you and introducing themselves as a Vanderbilt, right? Or as a Biltmore or uh, as a Disney. Hello, my name is Marcus Disney. It's like, what? Did you forget a word that you went to Disney? Or like, what? Your last name is Disney? Okay, sign him up. Sign him up. Doesn't need a resume. He's good. So once you know that's how it worked back in the day, it might start to make sense when we actually get introduced to the most important guy in the biblical story, Jesus. Matthew kicks things off by describing for us the family that he actually comes from. It's his way of saying, hey, here's who Jesus is, right? Here are his credentials. Here is his legitimacy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Look at all these people. He is worthy. It's a list of names that is meant to convince us of his stock and therefore his rightful place as the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel. So here's how biblical scholar and pastor N.T. Wright describes the way that this genealogy would have uh, been read to ancient ears. He says this, For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Like a great procession coming down a city street, we watch the figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for, one, uh, for the one who comes to the position of greatest honor right at the end. We've all seen Aladdin, right? That's kind of how it worked when he was doing the processional. Um, so this is what Matthew was doing. He was giving a long, drawn-out, dramatic royal introduction to Jesus to show his readers how legit Jesus was. But to be honest, that's when things start to get a little weird, just a little bit. Because this isn't your ordinary genealogy. Um, there are at least a few things in this genealogy that are very odd for Matthew to include, if we're being honest. Things you wouldn't expect at all from a genealogy during this time period. Uh, for starters, there are women in the gene genealogy. Now, I'm a huge fan of women. Hear me say that. It's on record. Camera, it's on record. Okay, we're recording. And Matthew evidently was as well because he included women. But you need to understand that, that most people in Matthew's society didn't feel the same way. See, in a patriarchal culture like the one Matthew inhabited, women were virtually never included in listing out ancestry lines. But Matthew includes several women in his genealogy, five to be exact. Now, what's more peculiar and which particular women Matthew chooses is, what, uh, is which particular women Matthew chooses to include. First off, the majority of these women were Gentile, not Jewish in ethnicity. So in a society that often prided itself on ethnic purity of their family tree, people who were of other ethnicities were generally omitted from the genealogy because they didn't stack up. They didn't really make your case that you were trying to make. But Matthew doesn't seem very interested in that at all, right? In fact, he goes out of his way to include them. But there's even more. 
For instance, you might be thinking, okay, but why not mention, you know, every woman in the generation, right? Why only mention just five? Which would be a very valid question, because if you know anything about biology, it usually takes a man and a woman to make a kid, right? That's just how that works. So why only mention five of them? Well, it seems like it's because Matthew is trying to draw our attention not only to these specific women's identities, not only to their ethnicities, but also to their stories. To their stories. You heard me say earlier that we're human beings with stories that matter, right? So the women here, the five women here, we're actually going to go through that. So let's find out who the women in Matthew's genealogy are. First up is Tamar. You can find that in verse 3. It's connected to Judah. Um, that's what it says. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, fun little fact, um, Judah was not Tamar's husband uh, or boyfriend. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. So there's that. Um, and if you're not familiar with the story, there's this really odd, like, rated R passage in Genesis where Tamar's husband dies, and then her father-in-law, Judah, refuses to give her youngest son in marriage, which was the widely accepted custom back in the day. So in order to get back at him, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. The quiet, the, the quiet is all I needed. It's gross, right? Like, it's just gross. So gross. And s- some of y'all didn't even know the Bible could sound like an episode of Jerry Springer. <clears throat> Judah was definitely the father in more ways than one. <laughs> See, Kent was concerned that that joke wouldn't fly, but okay, y'all laugh. That's good. That's good. Okay. <clears throat> we'll just keep moving on. We'll just keep moving on as quickly as possible. Uh, Next in the lineage is Rahab. You can find that in verse 5. Rahab was an actual prostitute, like for a living. And not only that, but she was from a wicked city that was actually under God's judgment. Ruth, verse 5, also had a decent reputation as far as we know. Um, But she was a Moabite, which means she was not, uh, she was a descendant of a guy named Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. Yeah, Mm, is right. Also gross. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then we have a woman who is only referred to as the wife of Uriah, verse 6. Now, we actually know the name of this woman, right? It's Bathsheba. Um, So why would Matthew not use her name here? Seems a little odd, right? Like you're using all the other names. Well, except for the brothers. We don't know their names, but who cares about them? Um, But here, right here, is very important. Why wouldn't Matthew use her name? Well, it's, it's because by calling her the wife of Uriah, he is calling people's attention to quite possibly one of the most shameful stories about one of the most notable kings in Israel's history. In the history of Israel, where King David sleeps with his leading military commander friend, Uriah's wife. And when you take into consideration the cultural context, it's far more likely that it was sexual assault. 
David uses his power, his position, to force himself on Bathsheba. He gets her pregnant and then has her husband, Uriah, murdered to cover it up. So Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah, not as a slight against her, but as a slight against David. To make sure nobody glosses over that particular unacceptable moment in Israel's history. All right, lastly, we have Mary. That is verse 16. Mary, as the eventual mother of Jesus, has been elevated and admired in so many ways, right? Especially in certain church traditions. But it's worth noting or highlighting that in her day, she was simply a young, unwed, pregnant girl in a hyper-conservative society. Not exactly admired or revered like she is today. Quite honestly, she is the opposite of that. Marrying her pregnancy would have been the subject of so much gossip back in the day. So in summary, when listing out Jesus' family tree, the lineage, the, the, the long-awaited Messiah would come from, Matthew has highlighted for us a vengeful seductress, a sex worker, a descendant of incest, a survivor of sexual assault, and a seemingly promiscuous teenager. It's interesting, right? And again, Matthew's purpose is not really to slight or to fault any of these women at all for what happened. Several of them obviously did nothing wrong. Rather, Matthew's intent is to leave no stone unturned when it comes to some of the worst moments in Israel's history. In Jesus' family, it would seem nothing gets swept under the rug. So the question is, is still, why? Why do that? <laughs> If the goal of a genealogy was to make the person's family look impressive, I, I don't think Matthew succeeded, right? Like, it's very unimpressive. In many ways, it's outright shameful. Because that's not what you do with a resume, right? With a resume, you include the very best things about you, and you, you leave out or kind of downplay the other stuff, right? In a resume, you don't say, I work really slow. You say I'm detail-oriented, right? <laughs> that was a freebie for your resume. I'm just, just working, I'm just trying to help you out. You don't say I'm inexperienced, right? Like you would never put that on there. You say I love challenges, <laughs> right? With a resume, you often figure out ways to kind of tweak the details just a little bit. You know, not fully, but just a little bit in your favor. And we know from history that people took a similar approach when it came to their genealogies. What, what people would do is they would edit their family tree just a little bit to kind of highlight the people in their family who would help their cause and kind of take out or gloss over, you know, the other people. It's kind of like that aunt or uncle that you don't talk about until it's Christmas or Thanksgiving, right? We all know that aunt and uncle. We don't really talk about them. See, you're not even talking now. Exactly. So Matthew has made some edits to this genealogy as well, but none of his edits make Jesus' family tree look any better. They, they kind of make it look worse. 
In other words, this was somewhat of a self-destructive genealogy. In all likelihood, this would have led to just as many people questioning Jesus' legitimacy as much as people actually trying to accept it. So what's the deal here? What is Matthew doing? Well, honestly, he's trying to do a lot of things. (laughs) Um, And there's so many things that we don't have a ton of time to actually cover it, which is crazy, you would think. Um, Yeah, so for time's sake, for all of you guys, I'm looking out for you. Just remember that. Um, I'm only going to point to two, just two. Um, I know that traditionally church does three because of the Father, Holy Spirit. Yeah, usually does three. I'm only doing two. That's it. Now, remember, the fact that there is a genealogy is supposed to show us that Jesus is someone special, that he is the Messiah. But the type of people in the genealogy shows us the type of Messiah that Jesus will be or is, right? It's supposed to help us introduce us to who Jesus is and the types of people that he associates with. So if that is the case, I think there are at least two types of people that Jesus includes in his story based on this genealogy. All right, first up, Jesus includes the flawed. Jesus includes the flawed. One thing that should be obvious from this genealogy is that God includes anyone, no matter how incredibly and unacceptably flawed they might be. Rahab was a sex worker by trade. Tamar seduces her father-in-law as an act of revenge. David is guilty of sexual assault. So to be honest, the word flawed is kind of soft-selling it, right? There's no getting around the fact that, that Matthew goes out of his way to highlight some of the most destructive, ugliest moments in Jesus' family history. Think with me for a second uh, about David specifically. David is, from, from a human perspective, the most royal, impressive person in this lineage. Like, by a long shot. He was the most revered and beloved king in the history of Israel. And yet... The way Matthew presents him here, he makes sure we remember the most despicable thing that David ever did. What David did was far worse than what any woman did in Jesus' lineage. It's as if Matthew is saying that even the most impressive person, even the most impressive person in Jesus' lineage is only here because of grace. Because no way would a person guilty of these kinds of things get in on this genealogy. But see, in Jesus' family, it's not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. However you want to define good and bad. See, in God's family, everyone gets in by grace. Let me say that again. In God's family, everyone gets in by grace. And by walking and by walking us through the brokenness and moral train wreck that is Jesus' lineage, Matthew is showing us that the person at the end of the lineage, Jesus, is in a category all his own. He's set apart, fam. 
No one else in the lineage is perfect, not even close to perfect, but Jesus is. And the good news about that is that Jesus comes to proclaim, <clears throat> excuse me, comes to proclaim is that his perfection stands in the gap of their imperfection. His obedience stands in the gap of their disobedience. When this Jesus goes to the cross at the end of his life, what he is doing by his own admission, mind you, is becoming a ransom for our sin. He is rescuing us out of our sin, however bad they may be, to where now the final word on those in Jesus' family is not sinner. It's not sinner. It's not screw up, but rather son, daughter of the king. That is how Jesus includes the flawed. And a part of the reason I think that's important for us to realize is because I meet people all the time who think somehow their past sins have disqualified them from ever accepting God's grace. People will think, hey, man, I, I've, I have done too many things, too many things to be a Christian. I've done too many things that I can't take back. I've run too far. I've run too long. People who say things like, if I walked in the church, lightning was going to strike me, Right? But see, this genealogy from Matthew would seem to say otherwise. It would seem to indicate that there is no such thing as being beyond the reach of God's grace. See, that's not a category that exists with God. So the truth, according to what Matthew is saying, is not only that, is that God puts up with you, <laughs> but that he actually desires to include you in his family, which is so beautiful. And we can gather not just that from the genealogy, but honestly from the entire book of the Bible, right? One other example is Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. That same guy, before he ever met Jesus, was up killing Christians. He was just executing them left and right. Hundreds, dozens of Christians. And then Jesus intervenes and sets his life on a different trajectory, to the point that in 1 Timothy, Paul reflects on all of that and says essentially, you know what? <clears throat> I think one of the reasons God saved me was to show the world that no one is beyond saving. If God used me, surely he can use anyone. So one thing we see throughout the Bible, and in this genealogy specifically, is that there are no limits or boundary lines around the type of people that God can use or will use to carry out his story. So listen, um, I don't know what you came here for. Um, I don't know what you are believing about yourself right now when you came through those doors. Um, whether that's how bad you are, whether you are a train wreck, whether you feel like you are too far gone. But hear me say this. Jesus loves you, 
and he sees you, and he includes you. Jesus includes the flawed. Second, Jesus includes the excluded. Jesus includes the excluded. Second, by the people and stories he chooses to include in the lineage, Matthew is trying to communicate to us that Jesus associates with those who have been most shunned, scorned, um, and forgotten by society around them. So Rahab was shunned by the society because she was a prostitute. Ruth was excluded because of her family's shady history. Mary was excluded because she was pregnant and unmarried in the middle of a hyper-conservative society. And even Tamar, who was morally culpable for her actions, did what she did in response because of being shamed and excluded from her husband's family. So when you read through this list, you see that Jesus ongoingly, repeatedly tends to include the excluded. And you know, all cultures throughout history have looked down on certain people, we know this, in order to make themselves feel better. Well, there's people's race, people below a certain economic level, right? Maybe it's people with certain physical or mental conditions, people with lower levels of education, all of that. Or maybe, like in this story, simply because of the family that they actually come from. And to a degree, we all do this. We draw boundary lines to decide who's in and who's out. But Matthew seems to be telling us through this genealogy here that God is not interested in operating by our boundary lines. Not even close. If you think about Jesus' own life, when he shows up on the scene, right, he starts spending a lot of time with prostitutes, tax collectors, immoral men, and women alike. He's hanging out with everybody. Now, we've mentioned before, you know, when we see the pattern of Jesus' life, we're like, oh, man, Jesus, that's so cool, man. That's just so, so cool. Like, we love it, right? Like, this is the coolest thing ever. But, but I can assure you, it wasn't cool back in Jesus' day. Not even close. Like, we think it's cool, but it wasn't. Humans say Jesus didn't get killed because he was cool. Right? Amen? Jesus got killed because he went against the grain. He outright rejected his culture's social categories. He looked at all, he looked at, at those who were most excluded. And he said, hey, come in. Bring it in, fam. Bring it in. Right? He included them when no one else would include them. That bothered a lot of people. <laughs> bothered a lot of people who were invested in that status quo of that day. But that's what Jesus did. So if you're here today and you have experienced exclusion in your life, Matthew wants you to know that Jesus sees you and he includes you. Chances are there are many of us uh, in this room that have never quite felt like we belonged in circles, right? Whether it's due to our ethnicity, gender, sexuality, education level, our personality, our past, for one reason or another, we feel like our story, uh, the story of our life is that we have been on the outside of society peering in. So if that is you, um, I want you to know that in God's kingdom, 
it's different. It's, it's actually very, very different. And it's one that operates on a completely different premise. And God's kingdom, the first, are last. And the last are first. In God's kingdom, the strong are weak. And the weak are strong. In God's kingdom, you who are excluded are actually now included because of Jesus and what he has done for you. And listen, not only does Jesus seek you out, he actually identifies with you. How about that? Jesus himself was excluded. The prophet Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men, and one from whom men hide their faces. John 1 tells us that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If anyone knows how it feels to be excluded, if anyone knows how it feels to be an outsider, it is Jesus. So for those of you in the room who have experienced rejection, the scorn you face, the the passing glances, the murmurs behind your back, Jesus has been there too. Make no mistake about it. And it's from that place that he is actually able to relate and to say, bring it in. Jesus includes the excluded. So, there we have the two things. Pretty painless, right? Two things that Jesus' genealogy that, that does precisely what you'd expect from a genealogy of that time. It includes the flawed, and it includes the excluded. So lastly, before we close, Eric, Jackie, you guys can actually come on up. I just want to leave you, actually, with one question, okay? Does our family look like Jesus' family? Does our family look like Jesus' family? And what I mean by that is, does our church family actively include the same types of people that Jesus' family includes? Is our community a place where the flawed and the excluded actually feel like home? Like they actually feel like this is a family that they are a part of and not on the outside peering in. When a person walks through these doors or wanders into the home where your life group actually meets and they've messed up more times than they can count, when they've made a thousand horrible decisions Again, more times than they can count. When a person comes in worn down and broken by their past, and they feel like everybody is against them, does that type of person come in contact with the people in this community and think to themselves, man, this feels like home. I can let all of that go by the wayside because this actually feels like family to me. And when a person comes around a community who has felt nothing but rejection in their life, when they've always felt like the odd one out, the one that nobody wants, when they are always the awkward fifth wheel in every scenario or worse, like people despise them because they are different, does that type of person come in here 
and say, man, these people, they don't exclude me at all. They don't exclude me like everybody else. Matter of fact, they always say, bring it in. They always say, bring it in, fam. Do they say I'm desired here? I am valued here. I am wanted here. Just want to kind of leave that, kind of sitting with us uh, this morning. And I'll be honest, I'll go ahead and kind of show my cards. I think we do actually embody that as a church family. But I think there's always room for self-reflection, right? There's always room for considering where we haven't embodied that and actually ask the Spirit to generate that more and more inside of us. There's always room to grow, always. Because I want us to be that type of family, that type of family that, that includes the flawed, that includes the excluded. And every bit of that, every bit of that starts with realizing that that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. So as we transition to communion, that's exactly what it's about. It's about a reflection of Jesus' body broken for us, moving us closer and closer to him, reflecting him to the world. Reflecting him to the world, guys. So if you are a Christian, as you look to take communion, let's do just that. Let's remember what the Lord has done for us. Let's, let's thank him for rescuing us from our sin. Let's thank him for welcoming us into this family that we have. And let's remember to also welcome others who are flawed and excluded into this beautiful family. Let's pray.